Welcome, guys, to the JPS Podcast. This is episode 23 with Brad Schoenfeld, and I'm extremely excited to have Brad on today as he's one of the leading researchers on muscle growth and body composition. So for those of you who don't know, Brad has a master's in exercise science and kinesiology and also a PhD and did his dissertation uh, on the mechanisms of hypertrophy and the application to resistance training. So he is the man when it comes to muscle growth. He's published over 100 peer-reviewed research articles. He's an author, personal trainer. He's also a natural bodybuilder. He's won multiple titles. And the reason why Brad is such a wealth of knowledge is that he has both the theoretical understanding of the science behind muscle growth and training, as well as practical experience. He's always in the gym putting uh, his knowledge to work. So welcome to the show, Brad. Thank you, Jim. So Brad, did you want to give the guys a quick outline as to you know what you're currently researching or what you have researched in the past and uh, give them an insight as to what I guess your role uh, in the industry is? Yeah, my research uh, centers generally around body composition. So my primary focus is muscle hypertrophy, but I also do quite a bit of work in fat loss. Uh, but within those areas, it's I've kind of run the gamut. I collaborate a lot, and uh, I've done work uh, that really spans from molecular stuff, looking at different pathways, intracellular signaling pathways. Uh, the majority of my stuff is very applied. I look at what the particularly with resistance training variables as to how uh, sets, reps, rest intervals, frequency, and, and the like uh, factor in maximizing growth. I've just done a ton of studies on a, on a variety of different areas. I also have done uh, a lot of meta-analyses. But one of the things I love to do, because resistance training studies tend to be relatively underpowered uh, by doing these meta-analyses, by pooling data on a given topic, we're able to get much greater clarity on the significance and even more importantly, the not only the probability aspect, but I think more importantly, the magnitude, how much of an effect does it have? Uh, so we've done uh, made analysis on just a wide range of uh, exercise and nutritional topics. And uh, as far as what I do, I'm a, uh, currently a assistant professor at Lehman College. I head the human performance lab. I'm also uh, the uh, sports nutritionist in the New Jersey Devils hockey team. I um, I speak, I write, I have my hands in a lot of different areas uh, that deal with education. Yeah, for sure. You're, you're doing uh, lots of really good work at the moment and yeah, your name is popping up absolutely everywhere uh, on social media with more research, uh, presentations, and it's really good to see, uh, you know, the the gap between the science and then the real world slowly being bridged thanks to you and a couple of other guys. And I was fortunate enough to meet Brad uh, and hear him present in Sydney last year at the Bropocalypse um, all about muscle hypertrophy. And that's going to be today's topic because I wanted to pick Brad's brain a little bit about you know some of the research he's conducted um, as well as where the future of you know, our understanding of muscle growth is going. So firstly, Brad, for those listeners who may not be familiar with your research and the mechanisms uh, behind hypertrophy, do you mind giving us an outline as to what they are and an overview of how they apply to training? 
Yeah, I'll first start off by saying that my research has not really been specific to the mechanisms. These were mechanisms, uh, what you're talking about is something that uh, was the the subject or one of the primary subjects of my master's thesis, where we look for explanatory reasons for uh, why muscles grow through resistance training. And the three mechanisms that I deduced from a exhaustive search of the literature and, and review of it was that uh, there were three primary mechanisms, mechanical tension, which basically is the force on muscles. Uh, and these forces are transduced or chemically transduced into the, uh, from the cell of the muscle, the, uh, the wall, I'm sorry, from the uh, membrane of the muscle into the cell. And there's a uh, variety of uh, enzymatic pathways that then are traversed to, to carry out protein synthesis. But uh, the other two were metabolic stress. And basically that is a, accumulation of metabolites, breakdown products uh, of metabolism, and they include uh, the common ones that are thought of for lactic acid and inorganic phosphate, uh, and also muscle damage. So when you train, there are structural tears to the tissue, and uh, there are, again, there's a good rationale for why that also might enhance the effects. And one of the things that I want to start off by saying is that this is a working uh, theory that's built on the, we can't directly study a lot of these aspects. They're extremely difficult to isolate, tease out from the other aspects. Uh, So uh, it's a working theory that uh, is malleable and that I'm certainly willing to revisit. Uh, evidence would suggest otherwise. And I'd also say that mechanical tension, it's very clear that mechanical tension is the driving factor because without it, you're not going to have, you'll have little to any growth. And the other ones would be additive and the extent to which they are remain questionable. For sure, for sure. sure. We know that science is self-correcting. So, you know, when you put out a study that shows that there are potentially these three mechanisms, um, you know, others get to scrutinize the data, the methods, and, you know, when issues arise within the scientific community, you know, we discuss and debate these findings, challenge them, um, and then we, you know, obviously improve our understanding of them. And, you know, a great example of that um, is, you know, the HMB and ATP attenuating, you know, body compositional changes by which, you know, you and a number of other researchers, you know, challenge that. So what I wanted to uh, ask you, Brad, initially was, you know, based on your original findings back in 2010, you know, have there been any challenges or updates to those findings regarding those mechanisms? So you mentioned that mechanical tension is pretty well founded uh, to being, you know, one of the primary contributors to hypertrophy, but what about metabolic stress and muscle damage? I would not say there's been any, in my mind, that there's been any new research that's come that would lead me to have stronger conclusions or weaker conclusions based upon it. I think it's kind of still in the holding pattern. And and again, a lot of it has to do with the fact that it's just extremely difficult to tease out. There's really been the, the attempts, several people have tried to, to come up with ways to directly study these aspects. And uh, in my opinion, they just... They're poor. They don't really tell us anything. They're just not. There, there are too many holes in in terms of how they would actually relate to practice. So, uh, really, the issue is is that there are overlapping factors within the mechanisms, which makes them difficult to tease out. So, if we were to break down each of the uh, you know mechanisms, 
Let's first start with mechanical tension. Can you give the guys a in-depth uh, insight as to what mechanical tension is from um, a physiological level when we resistance train? Yeah, so mechanical tension would be a force that is uh, acting on the muscle. So muscles uh, generate a torque to move the body. Uh, and I don't want to get too technical here, but resistance training, your your body, uh, your uh, a limb will have to either move the weight or actually you can have isometric uh, force as well, uh, where there's basically there's forces that are acting where there's no movement. But in the traditional dynamic sense, you're going to have eccentric and concentric contractions. And um, even in the case of isometric, where there's no contraction, there's still a, the muscle is producing force. Well, these forces are then, uh, they act upon the muscle and the muscle uh, uh, transduces them. There's a chemical transduction of these forces whereby the mechanical force, mechanical forces are created, are transduced into chemical signals. They go into the muscle and the muscle then uh, through various enzymatic pathways, uh, the final uh, aspect carries out muscle protein synthesis. Uh, and there's also muscle protein breakdown because there are catabolic and anabolic uh, intracellular signaling pathways. And we're just trying, we're just beginning to understand, uh, number one, what these pathways are. And there's still so much more to understand as far as how they interact with each other and, and their role in carrying out protein synthesis. I can give you a, for, uh, for instance, mTOR is, is uh, generally recognized as a obligatory, mandatory um, enzyme in this signaling pathway. Well, number one, uh, certainly you can have muscle protein synthesis. There are uh, mTOR independent pathways that can carry out uh, pro the protein synthetic response. And even with that, so we know that higher levels of mTOR generally correlate with greater hypertrophy, but when mTOR is very high, uh, for prolonged periods, it actually can have negative effects. So these are all things that just uh, re require a lot more study, and we're not yeah. really clear how they all interact with one another. And in terms of metabolic stress, you know, uh, obviously most of the people listening will be familiar with the feeling or the sensation um, of metabolic stress, you know, getting a pump and having that, you know, really swole muscle, right? Um, so can you uh, delineate for the guys what metabolic stress is? Yeah, so metabolic stress is the accumulation of uh, metabolites, the breakdown products from metabolism. mentioned before that lactic acid would be a primary one. Uh, generally speaking, your higher rep sets, moderate to higher rep, are going to have greater metabolic accumulation than your low rep sets. Uh, first of all, they're being carried out for longer periods of time. And secondly, uh, there is you're using much more of the glycolytic pathway, fast glycolysis in particular, whereas with a, uh, uh, let's say, a three rep set, it's primarily being carried out through your phosphagen system, your ATP creatine phosphate system, and there's little use of, of glycolysis of carbohydrates for fuel stored carbs, whereas uh, during a 10-rep set, 15-rep set, 20-rep set, uh, fast glycolysis is highly dependent. A 10-12-rep um, to set is roughly relying on 80% of glucose, glycogen, for fuel. Uh, so these during that process, since there is little oxygen, since oxygen is in short supply during this, these types of sets, the uh, there is a conversion of pyruvate into uh, lactic acid. It cannot go into the aerobic pathway. And uh, thus you tend to get that burn that's gonna start to build up in the 
and the muscles, and uh, that would be metabolic stress. And there's been multiple theorized uh, ways in which metabolic stress can contribute to hypertrophy. Number one is increasing the uh, the recruitment of muscle fibers. So fiber recruitment, certainly if you don't recruit a fiber, you're not going to, there's no way it can adapt to, to uh, getting bigger. Um, so that's number one. And that is, by the way, a mechanism or a factor by which uh, higher rep sets are thought to bring about uh, activation of at least a large portion of the motor pool, mm. uh, both slow twitch as well as faster twitch fibers. Uh, but there are many others that have been theorized through metabolic stress. And, um, uh, they include um, buildup of myokines, which are signaling uh, agents in the muscle. There's cell swelling, whereby uh, the metabolites tend to pull water into the uh, cell, which hydrates the cell. And that is, is a theorized mechanism by which uh, swelling might have effects on muscle growth. And some others as well. Awesome, awesome. And I guess the mechanism that has come under the most amount of scrutiny, or at least discussion, um, you know, which is a really positive thing, uh, I believe, uh, is muscle damage. Um, so, do you want to give the guys an outline as to what muscle damage is um, and the role, if any, that it plays in hypertrophy? Yeah, so muscle damage is when uh, when you train, there are going to be small micro tears within the fibers, uh, and this has been shown under electron uh, microscope uh, viewings. Uh, so it's it's well established that there is uh, damage to fibers from the uh, training process, um, and they can be you can have extensive, you can have everything from very mild damage to extensive damage. Um, the, there are multiple theoretical uh, ways in which muscle damage uh, would seem to play a role in, in hypertrophy. One of them is increased satellite cell uh, activation and, um, and um, differentiation. So basically satellite cells are stem cells, they're muscle stem cells that are quiescent uh, when there's no activity. Once uh, you actually start training, they are woken up, if you will, and they uh, then go into a uh, repair mode, specifically uh, from uh, from a damage standpoint. So contractions themselves, muscle contractions, stimulate satellite cell activity. But the damage as well has been shown to be a potent stimulator of satellite cell uh, activation. And uh, satellite cells do multiple things besides repairing. They donate nuclei to the fibers. So there's uh, various theories by which they basically the nuclei are the production plants for protein synthesis. Once they each nuclei gets tapped out as to how much protein proteins can be synthesized, you need more nuclei in order to keep growing. And uh, the satellite cells are the primary mechanism that will donate their nuclei to the fibers. And uh, it's been shown that. Um, that muscle damage, but there are others too. There are. Um, there's been uh, talk about how um, inflammatory responses can also enter into uh, the fray uh, with neutrophils and, and other um, compounds, molecular compounds. Um, cell swelling might enter into this picture as well. So, so again, there's multiple other uh, ways in which it's been theorized. And by the way, both. 
I've done review papers within the past several years. Now they're getting a little older. I think uh, they probably around 2013, 14, somewhere in that realm. I did uh, review papers on both um, metabolic stress and muscle damage. One was in JSCR and the other was in sports medicine, the journal of sport medicine. I don't remember which is which at this point. Awesome, awesome. And as I mentioned, muscle damage has been, you know, quite uh, a topic of discussion in the evidence-based community, I guess, of late. Um, and it's primarily uh, based on a study by Damas et al., um, whereby they showed that uh, muscle damage extends recovery times and increases protein breakdown, which may not uh, necessarily uh, increase hypertrophy per se. So. I guess this has been something that Menno uh, has challenged and he proposes a new theory of the mechanisms and muscle damage not necessarily being a desirable factor for muscle growth. So can you uh, explain to the guys you know, how this uh, has come about, Brad, and I guess moving forward whether or not that has changed your position on muscle damage and if it's actually something that we should seek in training or it's a byproduct of training? Well... The, the Damas study in no way investigated and never set out to investigate mm, exactly muscle right, damage. Yeah. So it's been, the, I actually spoke with Mano and, and talk, discussed this with him. It's been misused in terms of, uh, or misapplied in terms of how people interpret it. So basically they just looked at where the design of the study was to look at whether the initial muscle protein synthetic response correlated with long-term hypertrophy. And what they showed was that there was accelerated muscle protein synthesis with muscle, muscle damage, but also accelerated protein breakdown. So after accounting for the initial factors, mm. then it correlated. <laughs> no way, there was no study design that looked to see, hey, if you increase muscle damage over time, would that correlate with greater hypertrophy? So to, to use the DeMoss study simply is, is a, mis a misapplication. It's a misguided way of trying to debunk a hypothesis. If you want to debunk yeah. a hypothesis, you need a study that's actually looking to study that. Mm -hmm. And like I said, that study, uh, those who are using that just are either not understanding it or they're misapplying the, uh, the study design and what the uh, implications of it were. Uh, as far as whether damage is beneficial or not, so this is a, number one, there's virtually, I, I, show me how you can train without getting any damage. Right? I mean, so here's some of the issues that we look at. Uh, the methods by which we're going to study that, they look at things like statistical significance, they look at creatine kinase. Um, there's multiple ways to study it, but these are, they're the, first of all, they're markers that are not necessarily, uh, it, it's been shown that the correlation to muscle damage is spurious. It's not, they're not really sure how well it, it actually does reflect the extent of muscle damage. That's number one. Number two, the, having a lot of damage, as I've pointed out, and I've discussed this in my review paper on the topic, would be a negative thing. I don't think there's any question that too much damage. So the hypothesis really is that there is a sweet sweet spot whereby a certain amount of damage is beneficial. Now, is, now to your question, is that um, a byproduct and that – kind of anywhere within a, a given range is uh, is satisfactory. And if you don't damage it enough, to, in my opinion, that would indicate the training response was. And if you get zero, zero damage, I guess you can. If I, if I curl my uh, calculator here, I'm not going to get any muscle damage. And yeah, <laughs> so so I, 
it's hard for me to to say. What I can say is there are there are factors that yeah. are byproducts of damage that would have effects on hypertrophy. That in theory would have effects on hypertrophy, whether they actually in practice are secondary or uh, or they they're. Um, Basically, they don't add to uh, the effects of mechanical tension. They're redundant. I, I can't say it. I can't say that as far as uh, metabolic stress either. It might be the, that it's dependent on the condition that you're training it. Like with very heavy loads, it might be more dependent on um, mechanical factors. With lighter loads, other factors might come in. As mentioned, these are all things that I think need studying. I, I would say with a high degree of confidence, no one can debunk at this point or mm. or no one can debunk it. And those who are trying to say, well, we have, you can, you can come up with a new theory if you want, but, but there are certainly, uh, and that's, that's fine. That's always good to get alternative theories. However, or alternative hypotheses really would be what I would say. You cannot dismiss that there are, or no, no one can, I'd be happy to debate anyone that wants to, that there are proposed, there are proposed ways in which these mechanisms may contribute to the hypertrophic response, whether they do or not in practice. That's not something I can say, and, and really no one can. Yeah, definitely. And it is one of those cases where, you know, we have research saying that, yes, protein synthesis may be higher when there's less muscle damage, but at the same time, you know, we need muscle damage to, you know, determine how hard we're training. If we're not training hard, you know, there is obviously going to be no, no hypertrophy. There's zero muscle damage. But pr protein damage is high. Uh, protein, protein synthesis is higher with muscle damage, but protein breakdown is Correct. accelerated as well. So we're talking talking net synthesis. Then, but but again, that's looking at a newbie. If a newbie starts training, we have what's called the repeated bound effect. But the repeated bound effect, it doesn't mean that you have no damage. It just means that the damage is attenuated. Muscle soreness certainly is attenuated after that. Uh, so how these things play out in practice still are require much more study before we get a, a good handle on it. And look, I'll say I'll give you a few other factors that you, if you want to look at, um, at least rationales. From a metabolic stress standpoint, there is good evidence that when you train in what's called a hypoxic chamber, meaning that there's low oxygen levels, that so there, there's been several studies now where they have people training in this hypoxic chamber one uh, group does hypoxic uh, training where there's low oxygen. The other one is in is normalized where the hypoxic chamber, the deprivation of oxygen is, is turned off. And uh, they use the same exact loads, let's say 70 to 80% of their 1RMs, and they're doing they're repping out with sets. It's been shown that this is all correlation. Certainly, again, it's, not, it's just very difficult to study, but metabolic stress is heightened, and the hypertrophy is greater in those in the hypoxic chamber using the exact same loads. Now, could it be, is it the metabolic stress? Are there other factors from hypoxia itself? Don't know. Uh, another, when we're talking about muscle damage, we just had a uh, meta-analysis on eccentric versus concentric actions. Um, what we found was a, a distinct benefit to eccentric training from a hypertrophic standpoint. And it was roughly in the range of 10% for 7%, I believe, as far as the gains over, over the course of uh, time. Uh, not Obviously, they're both in our conclusion was that both concentric and eccentric actions are synergistic. But what we know is that um, eccentric actions promote greater muscle damage. Now, is that the reason why you're getting greater growth? We can't say. You can, mm. 
can make a case why it might be. Other people can make a case why why it isn't. Uh, so these are again all things why uh, certainly I would never look to say this is the theory. This it's not gra- we're not talking about gravity now. You know, we're, <laughs> you know that's a pretty well established theory. These are still uh, speculative. Uh, the the theory itself, the model is speculative. And uh, it deserves uh, scrutiny and deserves to be changed if and when we get uh, better evidence that would suggest one way or the other. But I would say in the interim is that there still is a, I believe, a good uh, theoretical rationale for it. And thus, uh, I think there would be good reason to have these components in your program. Correct, correct. And I guess that, you know, that is a great way to think of, you know, muscle hypertrophy and all of the literature looking into how we, you know, maximize muscle growth. It is very much in its infancy. It's not something, you know, that is extremely well established and we are very much, uh, you know, learning as we go, so to speak. And whether or not muscle damage is causative, additive or detrimental to growth is, you know, yet to be determined. We're still uh, in need of more research. But what I wanted to ask you in relation to muscle damage, you know, is that there's been speculation and theories proposed that muscle damage could potentially uh, be an investment uh, for future growth, um, you know, supporting the myonuclear domain theory. So what are your thoughts on that, Brad? You know, can we, once we've, you know, be advanced beyond those beginner years, um, intermediate years, and, you know, obviously the repeat about effect, um, you know, has taken place and we're not getting as much damage from training because we're simply, you know, accustomed to training. Is training specifically to, you know, create more damage beneficial in allowing us to, you know, create more myonuclear and potentially open up that window for further growth? That's a great question, a great point, and that's something that I've speculated on that uh, perhaps also that uh, the short-term nature of studies, you're not going to, the need for more nuclei generally is not going to be apparent, especially in newbies, uh, for, you know, 8, 12 weeks plus. It's as you start going along over time where the amount of, of protein that can be um, synthesized from the nuclei that you have uh, are not adequate and you thus start needing these uh, nuclei. And thus, could it be more beneficial or more important in trained subjects? It's a working theory. Um, mm. So, and by the way, there's also uh, some fairly good evidence uh, that that NSAIDs, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, uh, blunt the hypertrophic aspects of the hypertrophic response. Now, this is an, actually an interesting topic because it doesn't happen in elderly, where elderly actually see an enhanced effect. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm privy to actually some new research coming on in younger subjects which showed a pronounced negative effect. And there's theories behind that, that in, um, in elderly, it has to do with the, the theory that uh, there's a chronic inflammatory, basically that they have chronic inflammatory issues, which are negative effects on hypertrophy, where that's not the case in younger people, but the uh, inflammatory response would be negated and that because um, potential uh Certainly, uh, one of the potential factors of muscle damage is this inflammatory response from a hypertrophic standpoint in the Cox pathway. So, so these are all things that are important. But and, you know, here's I think the take home, which I think is uh, for it's nice to geek out and try to speculate on what these mechanisms are. But, but here's what I would say: I, I think that whether these factors are the, the causal or not, 
having some higher reps along with lower reps is going to be beneficial. And that's, I think there's mounting evidence that that's mm. the case. So whether it's in the higher reps, metabolic stress or other factors that are causing the greater growth, whether it is the case or not, the outcome is going to be the same in terms of programming that. I think having eccentric actions, certainly focusing on uh, eccentrics and potentially even having some work on um, accentuated uh, negatives like uh, super, super maximal uh, eccentric actions might be beneficial, whether that has uh, whether that's due to damage or not, who knows? But again, based on the evidence that we have currently, those are, are techniques that I would certainly suggest might or, or would enhance the hypertrophic response. And uh, we can speculate on their mechanisms. But regardless, the outcome is going to be the same in terms of programming. For sure. Everybody loves getting a pump, a pump rad. So, you know, I don't think you have to steer the bros away from the higher rep ranges, that's for sure. Um, and you're exactly right. So all of this, you know, theory is speculation and it is so cool to geek out. And I love hearing you talk about all of the, you know, intricate pathways, you know, behind muscle growth. But, you know, in reality, for those people listening to this podcast, you know, who may be interested in those things, that's all well and good. But at the end of the day, we need to know how to design a program to Build muscles. So that's what I wanted to talk about now, Brad. Was you know un having an understanding of these three mechanisms, or at least how they play a role in hypertrophy. How do we best design a program, uh, you know, to make sure that we are maximizing hypertrophy? Where's our starting point? Yeah. Well, well of course, we don't have another couple hours to go through all <laughs> the specifics. I mean, these are presentations that I do over full day presentations that get into that, but the. The, uh, I'll give you kind of the short course that uh, number one, the, uh, you want to train throughout a spectrum of, of rep ranges, that there is some mounting evidence, and we will be presenting uh, some new evidence on top that uh, they might have fiber type specific effects so that you might be able to maximize the whole, the whole muscle growth by enhancing specific fiber type adaptations. Uh, that uh, higher volumes are warranted. Uh, certainly we've done work, uh, meta analytic work, uh, and I have some other uh, work in review now that looks at volume and, and actually another study about to uh, be undertaken. But the current literature, I think, strongly suggests mm. that higher volumes are beneficial. And uh, I speculate, and certainly this is just uh, my own hypothesis and something that I've used a lot in um, in practical application with bodybuilders and high-level physique competitors, uh, is that periodizing volume over time where you, because uh, if you keep training at high volumes, basically the person becomes overtrained, and that a periodized approach where you gradually increase uh, volume over a spectrum of time is beneficial. Uh, high, somewhat higher frequencies, a training minimum of twice a week, excuse me, per muscle group seems to... Uh, uh, be a minimum, which contrary to the old bro split type workout. Um, although I, I will also say this, that gets a lot of trash. A typical bro split, you're going to be working certainly in the upper body. You work those muscles multiple times yeah. once a week for the most part. Mm. Like the biceps, depending on your split, you might work them three times a week in a typical bro split. If you're doing back one day, um, biceps another, and then chest if you're doing uh, like even flies and then yeah. biceps are going to get some work over the course of three separate days. Whereas the legs, if you're just training your legs once a week, you really need to bump that up. For sure. Rest intervals, somewhat higher rest intervals. Uh, the 
very short rest interval theory. Mm. Uh, most of the new research suggests that kind of two minutes would be a, a minimum, but perhaps for single joint movements, having a minute uh, lesser time is satisfactory and perhaps additive. Uh, so within that, how, how it breaks down, you need to vary your movements. And that's really where the art of science yeah. uh, comes in. The art uh, blends in with science. And, and that's your typical uh, uh, bridging the gap between science and, and practice. For sure, for sure. And we know that volume is, you know, the primary driver of hypertrophy. And there's a lot of literature now to support how uh, pivotal increases in training volume over time are to muscle growth. And I guess the question I had for you, Brad, because you spoke about training through a broad uh, spectrum of reps, and a lot of people now have, you know, seen the whole volume movements, I guess, as, you know, just get volume in, um, but really fail to take into consideration, you know, uh, an important uh, factor in you know hypertrophy, which is proximity to failure. Um, you know because a lot of people might be getting ten sets of three uh, three reps. You know at 100 kilos, which is you know the same volume as three sets of ten. However, you know proximity to failure will be a lot higher, and three sets of ten will be more fatiguing. So, can you explain why you know maybe not all volume is created equally, and why you know the intensity of a set? is important when we're looking to, you know, achieve volume? Yeah, so I, I think a good explanatory um, uh, situation that I can give you uh, that would kind of give you insight into that is uh, my dissertation work mm -hmm. where we looked at a bodybuilding st uh, type routine, which was three sets of 10, versus a powerlifting routine, which is seven sets of three, and we showed that they had roughly equal hypertrophy after eight weeks. The fly in the ointment here is that after, the study, and this was only eight weeks, the powerlifting group was toast. Number one, two of them were, and every one of them were complaining of sore joints, their back hurt. I mean, it, they were really toast by that by the end of the study where the bodybuilding group was feeling they could have gone on. They actually could have done more volume. So um, it's much more efficient to train with, um, with moderate to higher reps. Um, your moderate rep range, your hypertrophy rep range, eight to 12 reps, something in that range, while it might not technically have the greatest, it would be really you can gain approximately equal amounts of muscle and throughout the spectrum of rep ranges. However, uh, it is probably the most efficient way to get hypertrophy, and you want to sprinkle the other uh, types of, of rep ranges in. So have some low rep, kind of use that as your base, and then have some low rep training and some high rep training to round out your routine and, and for maximization of and I guess, you know, one of the important things that has really started to come to the forefront of discussion in hypertrophy is how we periodize hypertrophy. So in terms of periodization and long-term planning for hypertrophy, Brad, you know, obviously periodization is just a theory. It's not set in stone. And a lot of the periodization research has come from a sports science background, not necessarily hypertrophy specific. Uh, which is where I guess the waters get a little bit muddied uh, when people try to apply this to something that isn't performance related. So what would be some of your key takeaway points for people you know, looking to plan their training long term and how they maximize hypertrophy over you know, the course of their career? Yeah, so it's, you kind of touched on it, but it's very important to uh, realize that periodization is a concept 
not a defined way to train. So you have linear periodization, undulating periodization, et cetera, and there's really a gazillion different ways to carry out uh, the manipulation of variables. So periodization, uh, by, by really a strict definition, is the plan, the systematic uh, manipulation of program variables over time to achieve, to optimize a given fitness uh, component, outcome. Adaptation, yeah. Yeah, and that would be uh, both looking at uh, preventing a plateau while continuing gains in, in its optimal manner. Um, there's no one best periodization scheme. With that, there's many different ways to carry it out. Uh, I, part of it will depend on the individual and their abilities. I mean, I use, um, just to give you a, uh, an example, I think the uh, concept of autoregulatory periodization is, can be beneficial. For some people, it isn't. Some people don't have the ability to uh, gauge their own uh, how they're feeling. Yeah. yeah. Whereas others, it's a very viable tool. Uh, both uh, doing undulating or versus um, linear type models, both are effective. Really, I, I don't think one is necessarily better than the other. I think they can be melded. I think, uh, and I do. I use hybrid approaches with them. Uh, so when you you start getting into the specifics. A lot will depend upon the person's goals, uh, their abilities, when they're looking to optimize. If, if they're, are they just looking for a, uh, let's say, to peak for a given competition as a bodybuilder? Are they looking for atrophy over time, where they're not? It's not uh, a day or event dependent. These are all factors that will enter into it, and that's where uh, really, again, the art of training is going to make a big difference. You know, we've spoken about how you know we can't train the same way forever you know there needs to be some you know deliberate manipulation of variables to avoid plateaus so how does you know training for strength then improve our ability to build muscle and you know what is the benefit of training for strength even though that's not you know the direct adaptation that we want to achieve you know when our goal is hypertrophy so again this is somewhat theoretical but Mechanical tension, as we've established, is a driving force, if not the primary driving force of hypertrophy. The implications of that is, are, so mechanical force is the amount of force that is transduced into the muscle. Um, the implications, at least theoretical implications of it are, if you can increase the force that you're using while keeping your, at the same number of repetitions, so let's say I'm doing 10 reps, and I can go from a lift bench pressing 300 pounds to 310 pounds, you would conceivably have greater mechanical tension on the muscle and thus that would drive a greater hypertrophic response. Training in a strength fashion, uh, again, conceivably, and it certainly has been shown to some extent, will potentiate your ability during your, your hypertrophy type training to use heavier loads. Uh, now, when you start getting into even the higher repetitions, how much that transfer happens is somewhat uh, unknown, but I, I think that at least uh, from a theoretical standpoint, and having some type of strength work in there to potentiate your ability to use higher forces, uh, higher loads, and thus create higher forces in your moderate to higher rep training is a sound theory. Awesome, awesome. And in closing, Brad, what is on the horizon for our you know hypertrophy research? You know what what's coming up. Uh, for you, what are you going to be looking at? You know, I know you probably can't give too much away, but you know, what are you looking to, I guess, investigate further moving forward? 
Okay, so at last check, I have 28 studies currently in review, and the majority <laughs> are related to uh, hypertrophy. You're a machine. Yeah, covering the wall. I also have very good collaborators, so it's yeah. not just me. Yeah. I, yeah. I uh, yeah. defer and have a lot of gratitude to the uh, researchers that I collaborate with who are really terrific, and some of them are machines. Uh, but, I mean, we're studying things like the mind-muscle connection, which we have some really great data on. Uh, we, we're studying, um, I have a volume study that's just starting. I have a, a training to failure study that's just starting. Uh, we have a, a frequency study that just finished. So, I mean, there's so many uh, so studies cool. on the pipes that uh, we have. And by the way, I actually have multiple frequency studies. One of them is going to be with, that's another one's just going to be starting soon. One of them, that one is going to have very high reps. We're going to look at like six days a week versus three days a week. So that'll be the first yeah. to hopefully yeah. to be published yeah. on that. So anyway, just a ton of different stuff. And uh, that's my passion. And uh, hopefully by the time uh, I'm done uh, in this world, we will have a much better understanding of the hypertrophic drivers and how to optimize programming. For sure, for sure. And you've done an outstanding job, you know, in the last, you know, 10, 15 years, Brad, you know, since you've been researching, we wouldn't have anywhere near the amount of information that we currently do if it wasn't for all of your hard-earned work. So we are very grateful for that, and it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Brad, thank you very much for your time. Uh, we look forward to hearing back from you with a lot of your research moving forward, and we wish you all the best. My pleasure, Jacob. Thank you. Thank you.